0: Black Wall Street, they were a community that worked together. So today we have to begin to build those same things within our community in order to be successful. We have to be a community of African-Americans that can build and that can trust one another in that building.
1: It all started with a vision, a vision of a self-sustained community where the dictates of white supremacy couldn't touch the people. And so, with this idea in hand, heart, and mind, a group of black entrepreneurs, innovators, and visionaries went to work, building on a 40-acre plot of land, the District of Greenwood, also known as Black Wall Street. In this space, the impossible was possible. Independence, generational wealth, communalism, All of it was being built and fostered for us, by us. Our people were thriving, y'all. Until in 1921, only a century ago, envious white Tulsans saw their opportunity to bring this affluent black community to its knees. Within 24 hours, Black Wall Street, a community that took 15 years to build, was destroyed and an estimated 300 people slaughtered, leaving generations of descendants to grapple with the trauma and economic fallout of racial violence. I'm Jay with Push Black, and today on Black History Year, we're returning to the Tulsa Race Massacre and unpacking the financial consequences of white terrorism. As we did earlier this season, We're sitting down with someone whose family has directly experienced these consequences. Born and raised in Tulsa, Oklahoma, Tracy Manning Gibbs and her husband are avid advocates for Greenwood. A mother of four, a former healthcare professional, and a real estate investor, Tracy now runs a shopping center where they prioritize using their business to rebuild the community. She'll talk to us about her family's experience Of the Tulsa Race Massacre and how, through continuing her family's legacy, they're resurrecting Black Wall Street's blueprint of prosperity for our people. Her story and the many stories of those who lost their lives to white tyranny must be remembered. And we're so grateful we had the opportunity to record this history. Tracy, what does Black liberation look like to you?
0: So Black liberation for me, coming from a generation of entrepreneurs in Tulsa, Oklahoma, is when you can have the dollar circulate more frequently in our community and not go outside our community. I think liberation is when you have a group of people free enough to create our own economics, free enough to create their family and household abilities. So I think it's just being free.
1: So let's speak economics. How did you develop the mindset that you have around that and around circulating the black dollar?
0: Well, like I said before, I'm from a family of entrepreneurs. My dad was an entrepreneur as well as my mom. And then, of course, my husband's family, they were entrepreneurs. And my husband's family really paved the way for the North Tulsa community as it relates to businesses. They own shopping centers. They own a laundromat, grocery stores. They were really involved in the community and building up the community. They were involved as far as it relates to providing jobs and teaching our younger children economics as well. I love the story that my husband uh, shared with me regarding his grandfather and so many different other stories. But this one in particular, when he shared about how when children would come to what they call the candy store, they would come and buy candy. One day, one of the kids had said that, they learned about economics through Mr. Gibbs because he was like, wait a minute, yesterday, this was 25 cents and today is 27 cents. And he was like, Hey, who's your, who's your president yesterday? Well, who was your president today? You know, we just had election. Who's your president today? So like, that's, that's what it means about economics. Anytime you see your president change, what you spend is going to change. So he was teaching them basic economics. And anytime you see presidential elections, anytime you see a president change, you're going to see your dollar change. So just things like that, to me, is important that we make learning fun for our children and we get them involved and we give them a greater understanding of what it means as far as economics.
1: Yeah, it's hugely important and it's great for me always when I hear about, you know, parents starting their kids young with that and that and those type of lessons being passed down through generations. So speaking of passing down through generations, could you talk to us about your family's history and Tulsa and how it relates to the Tulsa massacre, that would be great.
0: Absolutely. So, Mrs. Gibbs was uh, graduating from high school at the time that the Tulsa massacre occurred. She was actually at home studying for her final test, and someone began to bam on the door and say, You know, take cover, it's time to hide. There's killing and there's things going on in Greenwood, and they lived. Adjacent to Greenwood, and so not just on the Greenwood Market Fair, but adjacent to Greenwood. And so they told them, you know, hey, you need to you need to hide. There's there's fighting. There's looting going on in Greenwood. And she didn't know what it was. She was seventeen years old, studying for her final test. I'm for sure with great anticipation about what was getting to recur in her life. And through all of that, she took cover. Her family did, and uh, they hid under the bed until the next morning. Someone else told them, you need to leave now. They're still burning. You need to leave the house now. So her and her mom and her brother and the cousin and the friend that came over and was saying, you need to run. You need to leave now. They all took off running. Uh, during that time, the brother and the cousin ended up getting lost from the family members. And so they began to travel on to try to get as far as they could away from Greenwood and agree from the burning. Only later to find themselves at the Tulsa Fairgrounds and later on they made their way to sepulpa which they end up being reunited back with her brother at that time but just hearing the story regarding being separated from her brother and just the fear of what could have happened to him and could have happened to the cousin at the time and later on being reunited with them so from there again she was old enough to know what it looked like far as prosperity for african americans what that looked like she was old enough to know what it meant for as an education, what it meant to prosper in our black community. So after the massacre had occurred, the family went back and their home was literally destroyed. She came back to nothing. They came back with this rubbish, um, nothing. Their whole house was burned down. The mother had to take a cleaning job uh, for some white people in order to take care of her kids. She was cleaning buildings at that particular time to take care of her kids. So then she graduated from high school. She went on to Langston University, which is the HBCU University. As she graduated from Langston, she came back and went to Booker T. Washington High School, which was an all black high school. And she herself became an educator up, up until retirement. And when she retired, she took her monies. And that's how they started their very first business was through her retirement. Because she knew, again, what it looked like for African-Americans to be prosperous. And she knew it came from us owning our own, not being dependent on other people. They would always say, we don't want to hand out. We want to hand up. And so they knew what that meant as far as being able to have a hand up. That means you have to be able to go in and provide the opportunities for business and growth within our community.
1: And now for clarification, what relation to you was Ms. Gibbs?
0: I love to say she was my, instead of my mother-in-law, she was my mother-in-love. I mean, just a beautiful hearted woman. We always tease that she loved her black people. I mean, she loved her community and stood strong for the community. One of the things that I love about her education was one of the teachers there, Mr. Woods, had told the students that you're as good as 99% of everybody else and better than one. And so Mama Gibbs would always say that was inspiration for them as they would always try to prove Mr. Woods right, that they were good as 99 percent and better than one. And if I could just tell that to every young person out there, because a lot of times we think that we're less than, we're not equal to. We think that we don't have enough. We're not good enough. But if we can only push through the fact to our children and to us as a people, we are good at 99% of everybody that's out there and we're better than one. And with us knowing that, that means that we have the ability to achieve in all areas.
1: That's incredible. I think that also speaks to the difference that black teachers can make in the lives of black kids.
0: Absolutely. We should have more black teachers in our schools because we have to have that reflection for our children. I, I'm just going to tell a story regarding my son that's really quick. And he's in the sixth grade. And I, I don't know if because this the difference in the learning styles or whatever. He was struggling and um, he, he takes was doing algebra and it's advanced algebra. And he was doing his algebra and I asked him a question about why was he struggling and he just couldn't put his finger on it. But what I realized, this was the first year my son was interacting with a white male teacher. There was something intimidating about this teacher with my son that he had a limited ability of trying to comprehend and trying to move past certain barriers. So I had to sit him down. I said, we're going to have a meeting with, with your teacher. And I said, but I'm not going to talk. Neither are you. Your dad's going to interact and talk with him. And he's going to explain to your dad how to work through the problems. Because what we were trying to show him is that If he could see a male to male reflection of an African-American man having an interaction with a white man and how they interact and how the barriers and the fears and all that has been laid to rest because there's no intimidation there. That would give my son enough ability to say "If dad can talk to this white man and interact with him. So can I. So he was able to see my husband work through the problems, work through the conversation and actually engage in a healthy conversation with him. And so I looked at my son. I said, you have to learn how to communicate with white men, because if you don't deal with with this white man today, then you will deal with him later. It may not be in the sixth grade. It could be in the ninth grade. It could be in the 12th grade. It could be a job. It could be a business. But if you don't learn how to deal with him today, you will always have white men that you're intimidated by so learn to deal with the intimidation today because i think we have to begin to teach our young men how to interact without intimidation because a lot of times that's what white men use is intimidation with us with our children and that limits them to the ability to move forward and to and to be the best that they can be
1: i'm sure that was transformative for your son to be able to to get that experience You know, so where does that come from? From what I understand, at a certain point, black business owners, black professionals in Tulsa, they held themselves in the same sort of regard where it's like, we're not going to be intimidated. We're doing our thing over here. Do you have any information about sort of the social dynamics then as it relates to the prosperity that existed in that community?
0: We have to realize that back in 1921 is when things were segregated. And so a lot of times, well, majority of the time, what you saw before you was your same people. You saw Black successful businesswomen and Black successful businessmen. And, and then those Black successful businessmen and women, they interacted with one another and they were community of success that was there. And if they did have to go outside of their community to work, they still had a sense of home of where they belonged. And I think that's what we're missing today. Where is a sense of where we belong? You know, I love HBCU schools because you see successful Black people come out of those types of schools because they learn a sense of where they belong and where they come from. We are the only, if you think about historically regarding African-Americans, we are the last group of people that know where we came from. Now, we can say all day long, I come from Africa, but do you know what tribe you came from? Because all that was stripped, who we were was stripped from us when they brought us here. And so a lot of times it's the identity of who we are that we miss. But I think in Black Wall Street, they found their identity, found their purpose. And so in that, they were able to then turn the dollar 100 times within and rotate it within the community and not go outside the community and thinking that they needed something outside of what was already inside. And I think that's what happened within Black Wall Street and where we don't have that today. If you want to destroy anything societal, what you have to do is go to a family and you have to begin to tear that family down, tear that community down. And once you dismantle that family, that community, you dismantle who that person is, because they don't know how to reach back to where they came from and understand the greatness of who they are. And I think that's why they were so successful. You couldn't come in and say anything regarding these successful individuals, regarding who they were, because they they saw it every day. They saw it every day.
1: It's something that I think is lacking to a great degree today, for sure, especially in the sense that you know, often we're taught to leave the community or we got to make it out, make it away from our community. And without that solid foundation that you described being able to see that prosperity around us, we end up thinking that it's not really achievable on a community level. So we get dispersed outside of the community. So we have successful Black folks, obviously, but sort of centralized hubs such as the ones that existed in Tulsa and others don't seem to be the norm now, which is unfortunate.
0: And you think about what uh, Mama Gibbs did. I mean, she was an African-American female that decided to go off to Langston University, get an education in English, come back to that same community that was destroyed. And she would often say, I don't even know why I came back. I I often wonder why did I not leave Tulsa based on the devastation. Because she said she could close her eyes and still remember what happened. I mean, she was 99, 100 years old saying she could close her eyes and remember that day as if it was yesterday. But she still decided to come back and and invest back into her community, invest back into the children in the community, be an educator, be an entrepreneur, and give back into the community. And the building that we have today, the shopping center that we own, when my husband's grandfather passed away and his grandmother passed away, that shopping center was supposed to go to the grandchildren, and it did not. It end up being sold by my husband's father. Unfortunately, it caused a big rift within the family. So when my husband and I were talking, I was in prayer, I said, "The Lord told me we were on this shopping center back, and he really didn't want to have anything to do with it. He was like, "No, nah, I'm, I'm good on that. I'm, I'm good. I don't want, want want to do that." And I said, "No, I'm serious. that's what he said. So I distinctly heard the Lord tell me the same thing to quit my job, use my retirement money, use my pension and purchase a shopping center. And we did just that. The building ended up going into foreclosure by the owners that purchased it from my husband's father. When it went into foreclosure, we then bought that building back and we put that money back in the building. And when I was there uh, doing the remodeling of the building, I would have people come up all the time and say, we're so glad that Gibbs got this building back. We're so happy you have this building back. If it had not been for the Gibbs, we wouldn't have eaten because their parents would come to the grocery store without money. And they would tell Mr. and Mrs. Gibbs they didn't have any money and they would do IOU tickets and they would get the groceries from the IOU tickets. And so even when they passed away, they found a box full of IOU tickets that were never uh called on would never well, never came back and they never paid but these people got groceries all the time and so their children remember that they came they, they remember that if it had not been for them we wouldn't have eaten we would not have had anything on the table if they had not helped us and so that meant a lot to me to be in this community to say we're going to make sure that when we get a tenant in, in our shopping center it's one that has a community focus community driven and is going to give back to this community because that's important. And so that's how our building has been ever since. And so we have been five years out, successful. We're just really excited about the opportunity of giving back into North Tulsa.
1: It makes me think too, there are surprisingly some critics of Black Wall Street in Tulsa who I've heard say things like, oh, well, that's just Black capitalism. That's not going to work for us. But what I'm hearing you describe is more than just a money-making endeavor it's also community support in a significant way
0: absolutely i think that's really really important
1: so with the 100 year commemoration of the tulsa race massacre happening this summer It's my understanding that the city of Tulsa is getting some financial resources from the government. Now, the big question is, who's getting the money and where is it going?
0: Let me say this. I believe that when you see the 100th anniversary come around, you see the fanfare, you see politically what's taking place. And then you look back and you ask yourself, are you capitalizing off of someone else's pain? And that's what hurts my heart is when I look and I see the actions that, that are capitalizing off of the pain of individuals that had to go through this, be it their family, uh, the loss. Because you have to think about so many businesses were lost and where those businesses were supposed to be transferred over generationally to the next generation to the next generation and building upon wealth where you had homes that were owned by African-Americans that were supposed to be transferred from one generation to the next generation to the next generation of wealth. And all of that was destroyed. And there is a big gap where you have a generation of wealth that's been lost. So now you come 100 years later and you say, we are going to acknowledge and we are going to celebrate you know, the lives and the history and all that. But how are you celebrating when you can tell a group of people that it wasn't the father city of Tulsa, it wasn't the father of the state of Oklahoma, that you were deputizing people that were not even police officers back then to, to go in and riot and go in and burn down and go in and destroy and, and bomb a community? And you're saying it was their fault, it wasn't the white man's fault. I have a problem with that because it was, and it was a fault of the city of Tulsa. So now the city of Tulsa is getting tax dollars that we be coming to our city. There's a problem with that. What are you doing with those city of Tulsa tax dollars? But then you have to look back at there's Black businesses that will be gaining because of the centennial. There's been several Black businesses to now be on what we call proper greenwood, and they'll be there when tourists are coming in and they'll be able to make money from the tourists. That should have been there all along.
1: So I'd like a better understanding of your family and Mrs. Gibbs stories. So tell me again, please. She and her mom and brother hid under the bed and they had to leave the next day and they went to a white person's house. Now, did they know this person?
0: That was just a helpful person. And as the story is being told and so many times people are saying that it was so many African-Americans fleeing from their own community that it looked like just, um, I mean, just looked like, you know, just a wave of people fleeing out of community from one direction to the next. You can see this People just walking because they were so tired of running. They were just walking until they got to a certain field. And when they got to a field, they saw a house. And one of the men had told my grandmother's mother, hold my gun while we go and ask the person at the house. Because they didn't want to take the gun with them because that's intimidating. "Hold, Hold my gun while we go and see if we can get some help. And so they went to the house and asked for some help. And it happened to be a white man. And that white man came back. And he came back with water. He came back with you know, things to help them so that they can continue on their journey as well as help them get to what they call the Tulsa Fairgrounds, where a lot of people were going there to have, you know, Red Cross and the different facilities to help them at the fairgrounds. Unfortunately, as they were fleeing and running, though, my grandmother's uh, brother and her cousin ended up going the other direction and they ended up jumping into the Arkansas River and thank. Thankfully, they were good swimmers because they were able to swim and they ended up swimming the, the opposite direction to what we call Sepulpa, Oklahoma. And they had family members in Sepulpa. So once my grandmother was at the fairgrounds and, and they were trying to you know, decide, OK, where are they going to go? You can't go home because everything's destroyed. They decided to go to Sepulpa themselves where they knew they had family members there. And so when they got to Sepulpa that's when they realized that the brother had already made it to Sepulpa before them. And they saw so much devastation and so many bodies and lives taken. So just in their mind, they just thought he was one of the numbers. So when I think back of that type of trauma and now you're going to college and your determination is to be educated so that you can come back and educate other black girls and black boys and give them a better opportunity at life. And then taking that information and saying, you know what, we're going to start our own business. We're going to take this even further and economically change North Tulsa by our businesses. And using that trauma as a point of taking flight, not just allowing it to hold her down, but using it as a point of just taking flight.
1: Were there any aspects of that trauma that were passed down to generations.
0: I often wonder that too, because I didn't really get a chance to have that type of conversation, but I'm, I'm a very good observer. So my mother and, and grandmother in love, Miss Gibbs, she had a one, one child by birth. And unfortunately that child, when the child was, I want to say about two years old, you know, at that time when they would wash clothes, they would wash clothes in those big um, basins. And a child unfortunately fell into the water and ended up um, dying because of the scalding water. So she had one child by birth. And then from there, she didn't have any more children by birth, but she ended up adopting two children, which was my husband's father as a baby. And then my Aunt Cookie, she was adopted at, at age five. And so she took on those two kids and she raised them as her own. But I often wonder, though, looking at just my father-in-law, you know, I hear a lot of stories about uh, they gave him everything. And I don't know if it was the result of Black Wall Street and the devastation and the trauma or just losing a child or whatever. But the work ethics to me was different because of what was given, I would say. Um, But everyone else, They worked in the stores. He worked in the store, too. But I think that just made him want to get away opposed to getting a work ethic and uh, staying within the family business. He just never wanted anything to do with it. So I don't know if it was just how they transferred the information onto him that he didn't want anything to do with the business. He was just kind of like hands off regarding everything. I really don't know. This is really with me observing. I really think sometimes that we have to be very careful and cautious on how we transfer information and information is being transferred to our generation as empowerment and not just giving them stuff.
1: Makes me think that, you know, there's a stat that says that most of the wealth that's passed down from one generation to the next is lost within the next. And I think what's not being passed down is the information or the values of how it was built or accumulated or maintained. The money is one thing, but if you don't know how to keep it or how to grow it, then that's, uh, that's a whole nother thing right there.
0: Absolutely. Even now, that's kind of something that I'm really huge and big within our community regarding equality and equity within our community. One of the things that you know I'm really pushing is I want to know the big businesses and what Does it look like far as their hiring staff and their hiring teams? And we are just coming upon a grocery store after having no grocery store in our community for years. And so now we're getting ready to open our first grocery store. So there's so much devastation in our community that you see in a whole lot of other communities as well. But when you see this, I begin to ask myself, who is teaching our young people on uh, work ethics, who's teaching them regarding filling out applications, things like that. I think is important on how we transfer this information. We have a1.5 million dollar project going on in our building because of our new tenants. and we were huge in asking, we want African American contractors. We want the contractors within our community to be able to get these jobs. And the agreement was made regarding uh, the contractors needing to be African-American people, people of color within the community, get the jobs. i tell you what was really crazy is that when they sent out the RFPs, they sent out the RFPs and a lot of African-American contractors did not even apply. It's not that they could not do the work, but the way the RFP read, the way the the contracts read, the, the building plans, it was foreign to them. They weren't used to that type of specificity. And so when you give someone something like that, you're intimidated. So upon the intimidation, they decided not to even bid on the project. And where I was taken back is that when, when I went and saw certain things like the heating and air system, the plumbing, you know, the big dollar tickets, you see the contract went to someone that was white because they're used to getting these major contracts so they're used to the paperwork but when you have African-Americans that's not used to that type of paperwork but that's what you throw at them the intimidation is going to come so they could do the work they just couldn't do the paperwork and I think that's something we have to look at to say is the system set up for us to fail because if you're saying that I want African-American contractors I want people of color contractors but if you give them your set of rules We can't play by your rules. We got to go into their community and find out what their rules are so that they can be able to apply for the contracts or apply for the jobs or educate them how to do it.
1: Earlier, you mentioned that there was a man in the family who, you know, you mentioned he had a gun he had to put over to the side when they were trying to find a place to to live. And from what I understand, there were groups in Tulsa at the time who were organizing for self-defense on the community. There were even people warning the community that, hey, you know, this type of situation is likely and we got to do something about it. Are you aware of the family's involvement in anything like that back in the day?
0: Not our family, no. But we have to realize that this is after World War I. And so you had Black men serving in World War I. Right. And so now they're coming back to their, their community. And they've been trained. They have been prepared. And so, of course, those men are going to say, we're going to protect our own. If we're going to protect the United States of America, then, of course, we're going to protect our own community. And so when the lynch mob came out, I'm for sure that's just nature. I mean, we're going to protect our own. We're not just going to sit back and say we're going to protect United States of America in the war, but we can't protect our own in our own community. And I think that's kind of when you hear people say, the city of Tulsa say that it was no fault of the city. It was the fault of the African Americans. What would you expect someone to do? If you were to come into their community saying that you're going to lynch or saying that you're going to take someone and arrest them about something that was untrue. Of course, they're going to stand up for the community. They're going to stand up for the, the people that's there. These are a group of men that fought for our country.
1: I think that's an important lesson to take with us even today. We have so many of our brothers and sisters that have served in the military and all these skills that could be used in a a productive way to protect our communities. So are there any key takeaways from just the story of the Tulsa massacre, the legacy of it, specifically as we reflect on it, but also look towards the future?
0: I think one of the biggest takeaways for me would be that people understand that when they see Greenwood as it is today, That is not the Greenwood that was of 1921. Right now it's been reduced to a block and it was more than that. So when you come to to a city and you go down and you see a mural that says Black Wall Street, I want you to know that what you're seeing is a mural that says Black Wall Street. You're not seeing the city as it relates to what it was back then. You're not seeing the creativity of African-Americans and the way they were able to build an entire community because they were a community that worked together. So today we have to begin to build those same things within our community in order to be successful. We have to be a community of African-Americans that can build and that can trust one another in that building. Remove all of the inferior, remove it all because that's what I think white men use in order to elevate themselves. You look at what's the biggest thing, uh, Black Lives Matter this past year, the marches for Black Lives Matter. When we are a group of people, and this means brotherly people that stick together, we can impact a world, we can impact the world. And I think that's what happened in Black Wall Street. They were sticking together as a community. And they were impacting a community to where economics was being impacted. Last year, economics was being impacted with Black Lives Matter. And that's why you see a now majority of the commercials, things like that. You're going to see more African-American commercials, more African-American items, things focused on African-Americans, not because people had an epiphany to say, oh, yeah, we're African-American. They spend more dollars. no. Is because of what happened with Black Lives Matter, a group of people sticking together. And that makes a difference. We have to stick together.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I appreciate you sharing your time with us and, and sharing your story with us. So, Tracy, where can people find you? Where can people learn more about your business, your work?
0: So our uh, shopping center is located 612 East 46th Street North in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We have a website. It's called Nextgeneration.com And it tells more about our family, our family history. It also highlights the businesses within our shopping center and gives any upcoming events that's taking place at the shopping center. So they can either go out to Nextgeneration.com or come by and visit us at 612 East 46th Street North.
1: This summer, the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre Centennial Commission will be facilitating actions, activities, and events that will commemorate, educate, and help rebuild the Greenwood District of Tulsa. To participate and learn more about the Tulsa Race Massacre and the upcoming events, visit www.tulsa2021.org. That's www.tulsa2021.org. This podcast is produced by Push Black the nation's largest non-profit black media company. At Push Black, we agree with Marcus Garvey when he said, a people without knowledge of their past, history, origin, and culture is like a tree without roots. And I'm guessing you probably feel like that's important too. I mean, here you are at the end of a podcast about black history. You matter. Your choice to be here matters. It lets us know that you value this work. Push Black exists because we saw we had to take matters into our own hands. You make Push Black happen with your contributions at BlackHistoryYear.com. Most folks do 5 or 10 bucks a month, but everything makes a difference. Thanks for supporting the work. The Black History Year production team includes Tariq Alani, Patrick Sanders, Albany Jones, William Anderson, Jerea Bradley, Brooke Brown, Shonda Buchanan, Brianna Lamback, Courtney Morgan, Tay, Tasha Taylor, Leslie Taylor-Grover, and Darren Wallace. Producing and editing the podcast, we have Sydney Smith and Ivana Tucker. Julian Walker is the executive producer of the podcast. And I'm Jay from Push Black. Thanks for checking us out.